Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Vangusti, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll look at China's latest call to arms and its efforts to root out spying. We'll also take a break from our usual event-related news to look at an interesting trend that's emerged for offshore Chinese stocks these last two months. We'll start with China's latest call to arms and its battle against espionage. Specifically, Beijing has taken its anti-espionage efforts to the street, calling on all Chinese to be vigilant and report any suspicious activity. But China's definition of spying is slightly different from the West, with things like industry data often considered as, quote, state secrets. And that's got the foreign business community concerned that they could get in trouble for gathering such data, which they usually do anyhow to make business decisions. So these companies have taken their concerns to their local governments, and last week Washington expressed those concerns to Beijing. So Renee, Industry data has always been a sensitive topic in China, though it seems to be getting even more sensitive now. Can you explain to our listeners why that is? For example, why is something like China's coal or semiconductor output should be considered a state secret? Well, um, I think that uh, I think that there are different uh, reasons um, behind this. Um, first of all, when when you try and convince your people that all is good and fair. Under a sunny sky, um, and uh, you know that foreign sources, foreigners, are able to paint a different picture by looking at some of your economic data and uh, making that clear uh, around the world. Inevitably, that information at some point in time sinks back into your country, into China, uh, in this case. And、uh, I think that、uh, this is one of the reasons behind this. It's it's controlling the narrative,、mm-hmm. um, which is always a obviously a major、uh, priority or a major drive on the part of、uh, the Chinese government.、Um, you know, I mean, I have friends in China who, from time to time, will tell me I saw this information. Uh, in the foreign media, I'm using a VPN, whatever, and uh, this is uh, totally different from what I hear from the、uh, national media. So、uh, mm-hmm. that's one. That's one consideration, I think.、Uh, the second one is that、um, I think it's it's、uh, it's more within the context of the rivalry between、uh, China and the West. Uh, and uh, what you may be up to on a geopolitical standpoint, and maybe even military standpoint,、uh, and、uh, the ability for foreign nations, foreign governments,、uh, foreign intelligence units to derive as accurate as possible、uh, information about the true state of the economy. About what China is importing and and what is for pure civilian purpose could be、uh, for dual purpose,、uh, with implications of、uh, you know the PLA and so on. One、right. of the theories that、um, circulates in the West recently is that、uh, that 
some of that economic data about imports in particular um, could give some clues as to when China might decide to take action on Taiwan that could result in sanctions from the West. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the idea of stockpiling a certain number of commodities in the large uh, sense of uh, the word, including food, for instance, is uh, something that is being watched uh, outside China. So mm. I think that this is potentially a second reason behind the desire to uh, curtail as much as possible the amount of information available outside China that helps to, um, you know, acquire a more accurate uh, picture of what is really going on inside China. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, well, so you're talking about outside China, but you and I, we both have friends in the foreign business community in China. And I don't know about you, but some of mine are expressing real concerns about this anti-spying movement. And that's resulted in uh, several raids of foreign businesses and even some detentions. You know, the people are, are clearly worried about it. And I've seen some companies even, you know, theoretically lowering their staff or, you know, making moves like they may not do as much business in China. I mean, what do you think the broader implications of this campaign are going to be for foreign businesses in China? Well, I, you know, I I hear pretty much the same from uh, some of my uh, foreign uh, friends and, and acquaintances in, in business uh, circles in China. Uh, this uh, this is not this is not good. Uh, it's not good for China either, for at least as long as it needs. Um, you know all the investments and, and economic activity from foreign companies uh, in order to prop up its own uh, economy. You know, there, there, are two, um, there are two levels in this, I think. And uh, the first one is obviously what the government apparatus, if you want, um, is doing uh, and the actions that it is taking in terms of targeting uh, people who they believe have information that they should not have or are seeking information that they should not have. Uh, mm -hmm. The second level is, is much more worrying, actually, in my mind, because it's the level where uh, just about everybody, every Chinese person, has been told and has been encouraged to report suspicious behavior by foreigners. And right. What does suspicious mean? First of all, it's obviously not defined. Um, that um, that is extremely dangerous because you know uh, there will always be people for various reasons who will take that uh, mandate very seriously and watch foreigners moving around and so on. And then you know there's no way to tell. Uh, what somebody in China is going to decide that this foreigner is doing is suspicious. And the consequences could be obviously extremely dire uh, for any foreigner who uh, would be targeted that way. Um, and I'm careful with the word targeted, but, but quite possibly some 
could be simply targeted because they're foreigners in this climate where, you know, uh, the Western world is increasingly considered as the enemy of, of Chinese people. I'm always very careful about historical comparisons and so on, but um, this reminds me of what was happening in Germany in the 1930s uh, as Hitler was, you know, coming to power and had declared uh, certain categories of people as enemies of of the state, basically, and encouraged German citizens to watch and, and report on those people. Mm. Dangerous, scary, but, but, but also dangerous. And I'm not sure that uh, this is going to serve the uh, Chinese economy and China in general very well going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, the, the comparisons are, are a bit scary. Now, you could probably even say, you know, China itself has some of this kind of stuff in its history, you know, during times like the Cultural Revolution and stuff right. like that. Yep. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's well, we'll keep our eye on that one, but uh, let's move on for now to our, our next topic in the podcast, which we're going to look at a, a recent trend that's developed for the offshore China stocks we follow. Um, and we don't usually discuss this topic on the podcast because the market changes so much from week to week. But for the last month or two, we've gotten into a sort of seesaw pattern for Chinese stocks in both the U.S. and Hong Kong, whereby they rally one week and then they sink the next. And it's, it's I, I follow this stuff pretty closely and it's been very regular. It's like one week, big, big jump. Next week, they fall down. It's very inconsistent. Um, and the trend continued last week with a 1% to 2% drop for our major indexes, and that followed a big rally the previous week when uh, everyone was all excited about you know, new stimulus measures or, or hopes for new stimuli, stimulus measures. So, you know, uh, I guess the question is, what's your interpretation? Because after all, uh, we've more often, you know, it's more common to see more sustained movements. Uh, you see a sustained rally or a sustained sell-off. Uh, you know, we saw a big rally at the start of the year, and then starting around the spring, uh, there was a a big sell-off. Um, and it almost feels like investors now are just blowing hot and cold from week to week. Uh, you know, what you know, get into your, your, the, these investors' minds. What's what's going on in people's heads? Well, um, you know. I would go right back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, first of all. Um, investors, and this is well known uh, and has been well known for a long, long time, investors hate uncertainty and lack of clarity. So that's one thing. The, the second thing is that investors are always looking for ways to make money and an investor's memory is usually extremely, um, what should I say, brittle or short term. Uh, You know, they invest, they lose money, they get punished. And then uh, at some point in time, uh, they get the itch again. And uh, they think that things are settling down and things are going to get better. And there's going to be a way to make money again. And then here we go again. Um, over you know the last 
let's say eight, nine months, uh, ever since uh, the expectation that COVID restrictions would be lifted and so on, there's been a growing number of, I would say, pundits and investors in the U.S. who have uh, said that uh, if you know what you're doing, now is the time to invest in China again, because uh, the regulatory crackdowns are coming to an end or will come to an end soon. Uh, the economy is going to rebound from the COVID, the three years of COVID restrictions and on and on and on. And, you know, quite a number of people went like, okay, this is great. The stocks have been beaten down and so on. We're going to make money again. And then, uh, then you know, uh, time goes by and uh, you see... Uh, developments that are happening that are not necessarily uh, going in the direction of expectations or, or a rosy scenario. I think that if you go back over the last seven months, uh, first disappointment was, you know, after the first quarter, the economy started to sign shows of uh, not growing uh, or not rebounding uh, substantially and so on. Um, they have been isolated, I know, but there have been cases that indicated that uh, regulatory crackdowns um, are not over. They may be shifting from one sector to another, but uh, it certainly appears from time to time as if there's a new regulatory scramble somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, then you see things like, you know, restriction on the availability of data. Uh, economic data and so on, which, you know, is extremely uh, crucial for some investors to determine whether they want to invest and to what extent they want to invest and, and so on. More recently, uh, we have all seen comments from Chinese regulators that law firms that uh, work on uh, US IPOs for Chinese companies have been asked to downplay or tone down oh, right. comments about China risk and so on. And, you know, when I talk to investors in the U.S. primarily, but the general comments are, we, we don't know. We don't know what's, what's going to happen. Uh, increasingly, it's difficult to know what is happening when, when things are happening. And all we see is uh, overall a drive to limit the availability of information that we need to make informed investment decisions. So, you know, it's no surprise that you're going to have ups and downs. The logical consequence of lack of uh, clarity is volatility. And, and that's what you have. And I think that it will continue to go on for a while. I asked investors, uh, you know, what? so what about now? The government has uh, given very clear signs that it wants to support the private sector again and, uh, you know, encourage them to create jobs and, and, and grow their business and all of that. And um, some were like, okay, that sounds very positive. Some were pretty cynical about it and saying, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the economy is in is tanking. The government doesn't look good. It doesn't like that. So now it's going to play nice 
for as long as it takes to get the economy back on a more solid footing, and then then what will happen? Has the ideology changed or not? Um, will it revert? Will it go back to you know less love for uh, private enterprise and more love for SOEs and so on? So you've got all of that, which is I think the result very directly of lack of transparency, lack of clarity. Uh, lack of availability of information, and you get volatility as a result. Mm. Some days people feel like, oh, something was just done by the government, it's positive, so let's buy. And some other days it's like, well, maybe we bought too soon, or something else happens, and they go, wow, this is not what we thought was going to happen, and then they sell. Mm. So what, uh, I mean, just quickly, uh, I don't want to go too long here, but I mean, do you think, you said this is probably going to drag on for a while. Do you see any catalysts that'll, you know, uh, make the market sort of go more decisively, you know, either up or down, you know, uh, something positive or uh, spark a sell-off? Or are we just going to be sort of in this sort of pendulum back and forth mode for, for the foreseeable future? I think so. Uh, for the foreseeable future, unless, you know, there are some... Um, changes in information flow or in policy or uh, results of policy decisions in China, such as, you know, stimulus uh, to support the economy. I mean, measures are announced, that's obviously all fair and well. Uh, they're generally short of what a lot of investors expected or want to see. Mm -hmm. But then the second aspect of it is that results are on the time lag. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time for uh, whatever measure has been taken to uh, actually produce some results or clearly show lack of results. Um, so it, it's it's going to take, take some time. And, you know, I mean, there are economic issues that are deeply rooted in China right now. And, you know, you take, uh, for instance, you take the retail... Um, the real estate sector and the government, ever since they reopened, basically last December, has announced measure after measure to support the real estate sector and so on. And it just does not seem to work, or at least right. to work substantially. There's a huge backlog of apartments that were sold and not finished. Uh, and yes, I guess, you know, those developers, or most of them are getting some money that allows them to complete those projects and finally give and them over to the buyers. But uh, that's not new activity in the sector. It's just mopping up problems that existed. Uh, right. Whether, you know, Chinese, uh, China, the Chinese consumer is extremely careful these days and uh, is not very inclined to spend money on big tickets like, uh, you know, apartments and so on, which, as we know, cost quite a multiple of your average annual income in China. And mm -hmm. uh, until people feel more bullish, if you want, about the future of the economy, about unemployment, especially among young, among young people, uh, you know, uh, shrinking and, and being resolved, overall, uh, the issues that... Uh, you know, consumers are concerned about. Uh, I don't think that they're going to go out and start buying a lot of apartments 
because the government is supporting the sector mm. through the banks, primarily through the state-owned banks. Uh, the other aspect to it is that we all know why, you know, Chinese consumers historically, or at least over the last 20 years, were buying a lot of apartments it, because they thought it was a safe investment for the future and apartment and real estate prices were always going up. You were not going to lose. You couldn't lose at that game. Right. That game is over. Right, right. Uh, and everybody, I think everybody knows it. Everybody knows that the appreciation uh, in real estate prices that people have had become used to over the past 20 years until COVID, basically, uh, that that is over, not going to happen anymore. So, you know, you have some savings. Why would you buy an apartment, a second apartment, which, you know, used to give you an annual return of 10% or something like that, and now it's going to give you 2% or 1%, or worse, you might actually lose money at some point in time. Right. Why, would you, why would you do that? So, hmm. you know, to, to solve those problems, you need demand, whether it's pure consumption, whether it's buying apartments, buying cars, buying anything else. And, and uh, I think that uh, for a lot of uh, uh, Chinese consumers, the demand is, is just not there. People are very cautious and, and, uh, and very careful. No? Okay. Well, uh, let's, let's wrap it up there. Um, everybody, thanks for joining us this week. In our next program, we'll look at the latest milestone for Luckin, which is uh, becoming China's coffee comeback hit. And we'll also look at a new strategy to lure investors from Miniso, which is a low-cost Chinese retailer in Japanese sheep clothing. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Meantime, hope to see you next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.